0: Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info@capitalchurch.co. At America,
1: where money grows on trees, (laughs) and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night, I stayed in my friend's round-down apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were wearing masks and doorbells and said, trick or treat. (laughs) I said to myself, what have I got myself into? (laughs) And Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year, (sighs) I also assumed just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. (laughs) How naive I was. I was not a Christian then. After years of unresolved issues and self-centered living, Our marriage was a disaster. So with the encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement. I I am gay. Since uh, there's, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Christopher's declaration uh, affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Not only I did not comfort my wife, but I also accuse her, she making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. So let him be because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife respond quite differently.
2: You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with an automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope. As my world fell apart around me, I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners. Yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart, then I realized that. Just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.
1: After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very excited. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare, because from now on, she has got on her side. <laughs> but what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And little did I know God was also work on me. So I start to go to church with her. And a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. While we'll studying the Bible in my church and BSF, I also surrender my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by joining both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son, Christopher, walked further and further away from God.
0: For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. (laughs) You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having his attraction was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master with pornography fueling my desires. I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret and I came out of the closet. I, w- I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. And there, I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be really clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. Some are, some are not. But regrettably, that is part of my story, and I have, to, I have to tell you my whole story and be honest about that. But I also need to be honest to tell you that when you encounter Christ, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. And if I was gonna do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life, of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides... Is that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there, and the dean's obvious, my mom looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mom and dad knew that when it comes to their children, nothing is more important than their children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the reality is many people may go to church and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. Like idols? What idols? The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of your 401K. And in essence, we often actually force our kids to do the the same. Parents, are you putting more emphasis upon your children getting your homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon their children following Jesus (laughs) nothing is more important than following Christ but if I could be really blunt with you I was not happy about my mom's decision (laughs) she wasn't on my my side I felt she was on the school side so I moved further away from them to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because in my world, I had become God.
2: Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words scripture and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, mom. Little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash.
1: My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta. So we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offer Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. So I left my Bible on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out he took my Bible and threw it into the trash it was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we all cry out to God for our son, Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold, but very dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring, the, bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted. Uh, every Monday for eight years, once fasted 39 days for our son, Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers and following is one of those prayers.
2: I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, Just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust Every moment I plead, I prayed those prayers for eight years. And it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of God's grace, as God drew us to himself each and every day.
0: Often, answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. This definitely was not an exception, but my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing ten years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and i and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Latin City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. <laughs> those friends that really get me more into trouble than anything else. What I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew as long as I have those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect calls. So moms, beware of your prayers, they're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list, home, and I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the, the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mom's first words were Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called him in years. And she knew, without a doubt, that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one, no matter what storm she was going through. No matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator, and she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. You know, actually, I was really doing all that I could to stay to myself. You know, I really wanted to avoid mingling with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. And I passed by this garbage can. And if you've never been to jail, they don't take the trash out every day. So garbage was... It was overflowing out of the can, and it reeked, and flies were circling around, and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper-middle-class suburb of Chicago. My dad has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is the word of God. And I certainly wasn't thinking, this is the answer. Actually, I just thought I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper but what we have in our bibles ladies and gentlemen is the very breath of god and it is living and powerful and sharper than any double edged sword able to cut through the hardest of hearts exposing my sin my rebellion and it wasn't a pre And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. She sat me down, shut the door behind me. And I just sensed that something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So the nurse resigned to write something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive.
2: A few days before Christmas I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His solemn and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn and my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees. A stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction, was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well.
3: When peace like a river, a ten. So with my soul It is well It is well with my soul
0: A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was on my prison cell all by myself and just contemplating the complete i mess I've made in my on life. I was lying in my bed and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There's graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, Read Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation in Israel to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still had a plan for me. Amen. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, and enough strength, to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could say that at that moment, I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and after that, like, everything was perfect, no more problems, far from the truth. God began convicting me of my dependencies, which were many, the most obvious being drugs, but within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that, that God loved me unconditionally. But as I kept reading, I also came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I thought, I need to ask someone who's learned more, studied the Bible, been to semin- cemetery, seminary, And I'm like, the chaplain, you know, he's read the Bible. But to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So think about it. With much curiosity. I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and his word, I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. Chaplain said, God blesses same-sex relations. So I'm I'm thinking, I want to read that for myself, not just take what he says. I want to read that for myself. And I went through the whole Bible. I was looking for any shred of evidence, anything that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or in pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. You know, I knew that God loves me unconditionally. We know that's true, but don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, yeah, God loves me unconditionally, and then I added, so therefore He doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am. So leave me alone." But after reading through the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. You see, my identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity shouldn't be defined by my my sexual, any uh, attractions. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay, it's not even heterosexual for that matter because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ (laughs) alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. Before I had become a Christian, I thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual. That, and what did that mean? Well, that meant the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and put to death my sin nature. So actually, heterosexuality, correct direction, but it's too broad, not accurate enough. And think about this. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Instead, God said, be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality actually is not heter- heterosexuality. It's not the goal, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness, holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I just need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change, it's not the absence of temptations. God doesn't promise you, oh, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted again. No, Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-rod ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue... It's not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life. And He called me to full-time vocational ministry while in prison, of all places. And I realized that I needed to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So, and God called me to full-time ministry while in prison, so I needed to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called up, collected my parents, and I asked them to mail an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of called Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to in prison. I was so excited. I tore it open and began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for References. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, (laughs) but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, I was actually accepted. I got out of prison in, in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001 at, at Moody. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from 2007, went on and finished my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the incredible privilege to co authored a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So my mom, she wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote, chapter, she wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. But the best part is how God in his power And his grace brought us all back together. This book, in the back of all, in the book, this book, Out of Our Far Far Country, there's a free eight-week discussion guide in the back that several Christian high schools are using the book and the study guide as a textbook. I mean, kids are reading this as a textbook. Like, I mean, I normally don't like textbooks. And there was a teacher that wrote to us and says, I have the hardest time making my kids read their textbook, but not this one. You know, I hope you parents realize this. And I hope you young adults, future parents realize this. Our kids are being flooded with a tsunami of misinformation on sexuality. You can't turn on the television, or who watches television anymore? You can't, you know, watch a YouTube video and, you know, all the YouTube influencers. Isn't it interesting what they call themselves influencers? Yeah. I mean, there's truth to that. They're just influencing them down the wrong path. You know the job to teach our children this coming generation? The job to teach our children sexuality does not belong in the hands of the public schools. The job to teach our children Our children, sex and sexuality, does not belong in the hands of Hollywood. Does not belong in the hands of media or anything else. And I'm also going to say something else, not in the same vein as all that craziness, but actually the primary responsibility to teach your children, the primary responsibility to teach your children, sex, biblical sexuality, should not rest in the hands of the youth pastor either. Now, he or she better talk about biblical sexuality and you better leave your kids there because when you take them out, you're communicating to them, I don't want you to learn about biblical sexuality. Instead, I want you to learn from the world. Might not be the, maybe the youth pastor can be secondary or tertiary, but not the primary. You know who holds the primary responsibility to teach this next generation about sexuality? Who holds that? Parents, And may I add, grandparents. Any great-grandparents in here? Any great-grandparents? Grandparents and great-grandparents. Do you know why? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I said this in the first service, the real reason, grandparents, great-grandparents. Think back when you were teenagers, right, just a few years ago. Think back. When you were a teenager, maybe you were an exception, but generally speaking, teenagers, how much did you listen to your parents at that age? Maybe grandparents, great-grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to your grandkids than the parents do. Are you actually using that as a benefit? to advance the kingdom of God and this beautiful vision of biblical sexuality, or are we just allowing the world to take it away? I think it's time we take it back. It's time we take it back. It's not the world's, it's taking it back that the world has stolen from us. We have to. You know, it's, it's using this opportunity and not shunning away. And I'm going to be really bold here. Because sometimes men, we just need to be bold. Sometimes men, we need that kick in the rear. When it comes to sexuality, we cannot just let the women take our job. Oh, you didn't hear me. Men, we cannot allow the women take our job. We need to be... And I, and I, and I know, guys... It's not easy talking about sex to your kids. You got a daughter, and you talk to your daughter about sex. You know, when that boyfriend comes around, bring that shotgun out, right? That's, that's how you do right here, right? <laughs> right? I mean... So, we have to talk to our kids. Guys, let's go. Let's get over our embarrassment, because if we don't do it, men, the world will, and I promise you, the world will gladly do it. You know, I gave this challenge, and I always say this. It was, it was just in this rural, so it wasn't like in a, you know, in a city or urban. It was in Oklahoma. And I, we gave this challenge, you know, that we have to teach our kids about sex and sexuality. And using our books even as, as, as a resource. And this grandmother made a beeline toward our book table. She, she's like... I need 10 books. I was like, you just need one. No young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for my grandchildren. And she went on and said, I'm going to mail every one of them a book tomorrow, and then I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandmother. That's someone, a Christian adult, that's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not shrug shrug off the responsibility, but to seize it. And to equip them with the goodness of the gospel and sexuality. So we have, you know, that, that book out of our, our country. But I introduced this concept of holy sexuality, which is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And I thought, I've got to develop that. So in 2018, I wrote this book. It came out in November. And this is where we dig deeper about, like, well, why? Like, what's the purpose of sex? What's the purpose of marriage? Like, what is there? Is, is singleness good? Which, by the way, Jesus was single. And so how do we understand this? Because oftentimes, the message of sexuality usually goes something like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And those are important. But we can't build a Christian life on God's no. What's God's yes? So my book, uh, 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 Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, helps us to think through not simply what's the don't do but what's the do, and why, and why it's beautiful, and why it's good. Because holy sexuality is good news for all. But you know, I, all the years that, the, that the, I look back, the years that the locusts have taken away, I look back and, you know, all this, it's, God has given us back that the years have, 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 have that, the year, that the locusts have taken away. And, um, I, you know, all of this where my parents and I travel on a national, uh, around the world talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to this Bible Institute where I'm now teaching as a theology professor. I mean, how amazing is that? Only God. Only God. You know, I look back on all the years that we've lived, decades apart from Christ, and I see some bad decisions that I've made that resulted in some really bad consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But here's the truth. I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. But don't we take it for granted? You know, actually, it took contracting this virus for me to realize a really important truth. That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. This world we live in now Is it not a crazy world, our country so divided? We have things going on overseas. I mean, threat of terrorism, threat of war, this virus. When I look at the world today, you know, I'm convinced. It doesn't need another good Christian, a good Christian who might go to church every Sunday, nice person, but doing little the kingdom of god this world don't need any more good christians what this world needs what this world demands are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the left says or the person on the right says, but they're living to please their heavenly Father. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. We've all been given one life to live. Not to squander Not to kind of chase after the vain things of this world, but to use it to give glory to the only one who is God. Because whether you're ready or not, every one of us, I promise you, will one day stand before our God, our creator. And my hope is that he can look at you face to face, and say well done good and faithful servant let's pray father god you are the only one that hears our prayers even when we are in our silent prayer closet, even when the storms of heartache and depression and trials are beating against our soul, even when it seems like the sun is clouded by hopelessness you are still God and you're not pacing the floors of heaven wringing your hands saying what am I going to do but God of glory you're seated on your throne The angels around you are singing holy,
3: holy, holy,
0: is the Lord Almighty. Oh God, why you love beings like us that are so messed up, that're so broken, that have so lost their way. And yet, oh God, you love us while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were your enemies. Forgive us, oh God, for not always looking to you, but trying to do our own way, trying to fix things, trying to even save ourselves, but oh God, we can't. Lord, this morning, we just say, For the depths of our soul. You are God, and we are not. Help us, God, in each of our situations, Lord. Recognize that we need you. Oh, we desperately need you, God. Not yesterday, I desperately need you. Not, Not last month, I desperately need you. God, I need you now. So send everything that is owed to us because of your loving kindness and pour it out on us today, oh God. We need you, we need Jesus, we need Holy Spirit. And so Lord, in the midst of our darkness, be our light. In the midst of our hopelessness, be our hope, O oh God. In the midst of our sorrow, be our joy. And this morning and this afternoon, this evening, this week, Lord God, help us to be great on your eyes for your sake. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray this. And the people of God said,